passage for this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 5. We're reading from verse 18 through 33. Listen carefully to God's Word. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. That was weak. I know this is intimidating, but this is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thank you. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we do give thanks that you have accommodated us and revealed yourself to us, letting us know all of your good and right will. By your spirit, we pray that you would give us understanding and that being filled with the spirit, we may walk in the ways that are pleasing to you out of reverence for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Our passage this morning hardly needs introduction, and while it doesn't need introduction, it does deserve some qualification. C.S. Lewis once noted this. He said, what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. And it's crucial to consider this observation and to ask two questions that arise from it. First, where do you stand? That the way that we hear anything greatly depends upon where we stand, and where we stand in life is tightly connected to the culture that we represent. And in this sanctuary this morning, there are several different cultures. There are people who stand in different places and approach issues in different ways, and that is especially true when it comes to the understanding of women's roles. And so it's crucial that all of us, young and old alike, reflect on where we stand culturally to understand how we hear these words today. Cultural assumptions do not always match what the Bible teaches. And our goal is not to be masters over the Scripture, but to be mastered by it, to submit ourselves to God's Word and what His claim is on our lives. 
And so we all want to come openly to be addressed by God and to hear what His will is for us. And this is very important in today's world, and it's especially so for both the conservative and the more progressive side of this conversation, that we want to hear from God and not just baptize our previous understandings. The second qualification that we need to make from Lewis's observation is we need to ask the question, what sort of person am I? Because to hear Scripture's commands, especially when you arrive at the household codes of Ephesians 5 and 6, it requires context. It requires a great deal of context. We've had four full chapters of context given to us. And specifically, at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That the way Paul frames the entire ethical responsibility of the Christian, what God's claim and call upon us is in the Christian life, is that we are to imitate God and walk in love. But the only reason that we can even begin that task is because we are beloved children. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children is what 5.1 says. Because God is committed to us in Jesus, because we are beloved, we then turn and walk in the way of love. We give ourselves in sacrifice to others because of the sacrifice God has made for us in reconciling us to Himself. And so when we arrive at these commands, it assumes a certain stance, a certain place that we stand and certain kinds of people that are hearing those commands, that we are not primarily oriented to our personal rights and, or we are not primarily oriented to our personal acquisition of power. That the Christian is someone committed to walking in the way of love in imitation of God because of what God has done through Jesus' death and resurrection to reconcile them to Himself. And so we stand in a culturally complicated place, but the kind of people we are is that we want to be the kind of people who walk in the way of love and honor of others. And so with these two qualifications, we can address the passage's primary question. How do we, as husband and wife, live together as one. Obviously, this doesn't apply to everyone in the room, but it didn't apply to everybody in the Ephesus church either. And Paul was diligent still to address this in the presence of everyone, and it's good for all of us as a community to reflect on. How do we live together as one? In verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis 2, and he reminds us of God's original intent that husband and wife were to forsake their families and the two were to become one flesh, to be joined together. That is a commitment of life that goes beyond simply physicality and sexuality. It involves economics. It involves the household. It involves the forsaking of all commitments in which we give ourselves freely to one another. He says that we're to be one. This is a theme that we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians, that heaven and earth in chapter 1 are being made into one through Jesus Christ. And then we saw that Jews and Gentiles, two communities that hated each other, were being brought together into one through Jesus Christ. And so it's appropriate now 
that we reflect on husband and wife, a place and location in life where there can be great adversity, are being brought together as one through Jesus Christ. And so how do husband and wife live together as one is the primary thing being addressed here in Ephesians 5. What does it require of us? The requirement is simple. It requires submission. Mutual submission freely rendered for the good of the household. Hold on to that phrase for a moment. You notice that in verse 21, Paul says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In verse 18, he gives an imperative that we are to be filled with the Spirit, and then he explains through some connecting participles what the life of being filled with the Spirit looks like. The first one of those is in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then the second one, singing and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart. And then the third, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final one, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That to be filled with the Spirit is to sing and make melody with songs and spiritual songs to the Lord. To be filled with the Spirit is to give thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. And to be filled with the Spirit is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ that the way of the Christian life is one in which we submit or subject ourselves to one another in reverence, respect, fear for what our Lord Jesus has done for us and what He is doing in us. And so there's a general principle for the entire church of submission. Everyone is under authority as a Christian. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the boss. He's the governor. He's the one who's bought us and won us. And we can't avoid that. He has done that on our behalf and He rules over us. And so then Paul turns to explain how this mutual submission is to work itself out in the nitty-gritty of home life. Though the submission applies to everyone, it has some very specific parameters to it. And there's two things that he develops in the passage. First, in verses 22 through 24, we see that wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. Now, for many, the first thing that they hear in these verses is a fundamental statement of inequality. This doesn't quite match with some of the historical evidence, and I want to ask you to consider something. That when people hear inequality, they fail to recognize the way that household codes in the ancient world work. Because Greek philosophers oftentimes wrote very similar household codes in their philosophies. It was important because the family was seen, and the relationship between the husband and wife was seen as foundational to society. And so instructions were given about how the household was to work. And there was one person addressed in those instruction manuals. The head of the household, the husband. It was a system of inequality. Barring none, it was a system of inequality. The head of the household was instructed and given rights and privileges. But you see here that Paul, he addresses slaves, and he addresses children, and he addresses husbands, and he addresses wives. And this is because in the Christian church, because we're created in the image of God, there is a fundamental equality that exists between us. 
We have equal standing as God's created beings in front of Him. That's not in question when it comes to Scripture. But also, our equality of standing cannot be confused with different roles that God assigns to us. That there are different roles that God gives, and His equality of worth does not mean identity of role. And God assigns something here to wives, and He assigns something here to husbands. It has nothing to do with His value. And wives are commanded to respect their husbands. You find this in verse 33. However, let each one of you, speaking to the husbands, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then in 22 through 24, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so this is how the household, in Paul's vision, of what it means to be these newly created beings was to operate and flourish. That these commands were not given to be restrictive, but to lead to maximum relational life, both in the home and in the world. Now the second piece to this that receives far more attention and far more emphasis in the paragraph, it receives almost triple the number of words, is the instructions given to husbands. Verses 25 through 30, we see that husbands are to love their wives sacrificially. As the wife is to come under her husband as the church does Christ, the husband is to be as Christ is to the church. That is, he gave himself over without reserve for her benefit and for her good. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Unfortunately, culturally, headship can be very misunderstood and misapplied. A husband's headship is not a sovereign right to selfishness. It's not my way or the highway. It's not a firm governorship that simply goes unquestioned and unchallenged. Rather, the office that God assigns to the husband is one of self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice that tends to the whole, the entire health of the household. And his role is to maintain the health of the household at cost to himself, that he is the one who bears that burden. Now, this can be easily flipped around and understood to mean that the husband simply exists to baptize everyone's desires. That he is just there to make everyone's life actualized and for them to reach their goals. That's not quite the case either. He's not there to rule with an iron fist, and he's not there to simply actualize everyone's deepest desires. But he exists as the governor to oversee the health and flourishing of the entire family. He guides the family towards what would be good and right for them. And of course, in conversation with his spouse. No one would ever, <laughs> no one would ever endeavor to accomplish that without that conversation. But friends, what is so critical is that God assigns an office for someone to be able to take the temperature. 
And what is so complicated for us is that person who's assigned the office of taking the temperature can also be part of the problem. And I can promise you that it is the most humbling thing to be given the role of overseeing the the entire health of something when you are one of the main participants in the problem, when perhaps you are the chief participant in it. And it is your role to call time out and to say things are wrong here. And they're not just wrong because of you or you or you. As fun as that is to disperse the blame. (laughs) But that we need to stop and we need to consider that that is the husband's self-sacrificing governorship over the family is to assess its overall spiritual health and vitality, to lead it into green pastures and sources of life and water to drink and God's goodness for us, that this is what he is to do. Recently in the Colson home, I had to stop and call a timeout on myself. There were things that were not right in Melissa and I's communication with one another, and we both knew it. We've been married 16 years, so we know the judo moves on each other at this point. We understand it. She can anticipate just where I'm going to go when she says something, and I can do the same, and then we play the same game that we did as young 20s in our our early married years. It can be silly. And the communication can be frustrating, because we can anticipate where those moves are going. And I found myself in a place where I was so frustrated with myself because I was disappointing in how I was coming up short of duties inside the home that I know belonged to me. And in that disappointment, rather than growing more intentional, I was becoming more passive. And the conflicts actually only accelerate at that point. And friends, the duty of the husband at this point in the game is not to shrink back in passivity. It's also not to grow strong in sovereignty with an iron fist, but rather is to grow strong in intentionality and in care and do what it takes to get things back on track inside the family. What does that look like for us? How does this family go into green pasture? What does it look like for us to find flourishing? Because friends, our families, our marriages need constant tending. It would be wonderful if there was such a thing as just addressing family health at one point in history and then assuming that it's going to remain so. That's not the case for any marriage or household in the room. This is something that has to constantly be tended, constantly redefined, constantly worked on, constantly kept upon under the Word of God and His judgment upon us, helping us evaluate and understand where we are. So it's important for us to also be very practical today. This is the main theology of the passage, but it's important for us to work at applying it. Because where does the breakdown often happen? Where do things fall apart? And I think you can sum it up this way. Is that husbands fail to take ownership for the family in that comprehensive sense. We like to focus on the things that we can do that are rather concrete. Provide for the family. Provide finances and make sure everyone's healthy. Those things are easy for us in a certain way. What is more difficult for us is to enter into the emotional side and complexity, and we don't always know what to do. And when we fail to take ownership for the family in that way, and we start to become more passive, 
wives oftentimes struggle to respect us. And that comes across in various ways. And in the absence of the respect, males become more passive and less intentional. And this just becomes a spin cycle, folks. <laughs> it just reinforces it and reiterates itself. This ants up the wife's issues. She feels isolated and uncared for while he shuts down in the face of increasing emotional complexity. And we feed one another in these dynamics. Small things then become big things. Intimacy becomes a challenge. Familiarity breeds contempt. Resentments grow strong. And the remembrance of past failures grow even stronger. You can quickly, in the course of a few hours, find yourself in a deficit where you feel completely isolated from your spouse. We retreat to our corners and we figure out how to coexist. And this is sadly where many marriages tend to live. When I was at Second Presbyterian as a young pastor, I would work out in the afternoons in the church's gym, and there was an old couple there who had been attending the church for a very long time. And I came in one day, and they were both walking on the treadmill together. And, uh, and I knew in my position there, and he said, Oh, you're the young new pastor. You know, my wife Mary and I, we've been happily married for 28 years. And he was well into his 80s. And so you're wondering, okay. And he said, 28 out of 56, that isn't bad. <laughs> and it was funny. And what was funnier is that every time I would come into the gym, he would tell me this joke. <laughs> he would forget the telling. And we have our ways and cultural ways of laughing about marriage, about accepting our resentments of our spouses, about ways of accepting a passivity that are not healthy. They can be represented in those little jokes. And it's important for us, in the middle of the difficulty, not to simply accept things. That as far as I can tell, what God is calling to us here is to an intentionality of loving and submitting, of respecting and nurturing and cherishing, which doesn't settle, which doesn't say this is just the way things are. This is just the way your dad is. This is the way your mom is. Yes, sin dies very difficult death in our lives, and it is hard. And sanctification at, or marriage is like sanctification vice grips at times. Helen Rowland said this. She said, marriage is the operation by which a woman's vanity and a man's ego are extracted without anesthetic. <laughs> it is painful at times. Rigorous. And when we find ourselves in this dark place, where there is difficulty between husband and wife, there is no amount of compatibility or shared interest or vacations that can get you through it. You can't buy your way out of it. Over the past 15 years, I've done a lot of premarital counseling, um, married over 50 couples. It's one of the things that Melissa and I have predominantly done in our ministry up to this point. And so we've had the chance to make a lot of observations of people on the beginning end of their marriages. One of the things that's most common when you show up in front of the pastor, and this puts everyone on notice, is to say, you know, what well, we don't fight. We get along. We're so compatible. 
and we just love being with each other, and we just have a great friendship. And I want you to know that that's the first red flag that you can throw onto the field. It's like, oh my goodness, this is, this is all wrong. Because we have been taught in our culture that combat compatibility that's defined over a few pretty facile things is the source of a good marriage. And that just simply isn't the case. That when you meet the real rigor and difficulty of marriage, the things that can go on that we rehearsed just a moment ago, your shared interest in basketball or football or running or some other hobby is not going to get you through it. Your attractiveness is not going to get you through it. Nothing will help get you through it except for the resources that God offers you in the gospel. It is important for us to take up those resources intentionally to address the things going on between us. John Gottman is a psychologist in Seattle. He studied marriages for years. He's had a laboratory in which he's welcomed new and old couples, and then he's written several books. One is called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And he explains there that what is important for a family's life, for the relationship between husband and wife, is not whether a couple fights or not. But the most important thing is how the couple fights. He says it's immature to think that a couple doesn't fight. You can fight very passive-aggressively and in silence. But how you fight is what is so important. And he gives four warning signs. He calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> they don't come to us in any particular order, but I think you'll recognize that you've ridden on each horse. It's a comfortable saddle. The first is there is criticism. And by criticism, I don't mean negative feedback. That would be what we call complaint. Complaint inside of a marriage because of our sinfulness and our weakness should be normal and well-received. We've been justified by Jesus, and so we can receive complaint. God has taken away our sins, so we should be able to confess it to one another. But what is more difficult is when complaint turns into criticism. Criticism is a universal statement about the person's character. For instance, say your husband was to take out the trash. I'll use a very easy one. He's failed to do so, and he failed to do so the week before, and now it's piled up, and you have rats and different things now around the house. And the wife, in a moment of understandable frustration, says, you're lazy and no good. You can understand how she got there, but you can also understand that that's not inviting the husband to much of a dialogue that he's been condemned. There has been a criticism leveled against him that is globalizing across every part of his life. Friends, this doesn't put us in the right direction. It doesn't help husband or wife in working through life's difficulties. The second, there is contempt. And contempt is simply expressing disgust and exasperation with your partner and it normally comes in the forms of sarcasm and cynicism. Contempt is more of an intuitive category. 
where something slighting is said normally to another person about the spouse. And what the person who says it doesn't realize is they reveal more about themselves than about their spouse. They've revealed something about the health of their marriage. It is passive aggression at its finest. And we do this rather than address issues constructively. Or we've tried to address them constructively and we find ourselves tired. And when contempt sets in, when that concrete hardens, it's virtually impossible to address issues. The third is there is defensiveness. And to defend myself is to refuse a complaint. It is to say, no, I'm not going to listen to that. Defensiveness in marriages typically arises because we think the other person is also at fault. And we're not going to yield until that person acknowledges their 51% of the problem. That makes us feel better in some way. And so we don't want to do the self-reflective task of owning our own sins. We rather to defend ourselves and to refuse the complaint. But this is where defensiveness fails. It ultimately escalates the conflict that is at hand. Because defensiveness is ultimately a move to say, no, I'm not the problem, you are. And friends, defensiveness doesn't help any more than criticism and contempt. The fourth and final horseman that we like to ride is what we call stonewalling. And this is normally the last phase. But stonewalling is when a partner just tunes out. He's done with being flooded. She's done with being accused. She's done with the, the criticism. The complexity is too great. Criticisms are too much. And so we simply tune out. We don't want to deal with the other person. It's too complex. And many people will give themselves the polite excuse at that point of just saying our friendship died. where there really was no death of a friendship. The death that incurred was the death of bringing the life of the gospel to bear inside of the marriage. Of each other taking up the responsibility to nurture and cherish, to love and respect, to bring those dynamics that call forth every bit of our virtue, every bit of the Spirit's power, that require an incredible amount of intentionality from within us. That's what died. That's what failed to be brought to life. And so what do you do, though, when you find yourself living with those dynamics? Because we all do. But when the tide rises on them, and you feel it up to your neck, and you know that it could take over, what do you do? Two very practical things here. First, don't be afraid to invite a referee into your conversation. People in different cultures feel differently about this. But one of the great privileges of doing premarital counseling for me with these 50 couples has been to make them fight in front of me. If you ever have that privilege, you now know my game plan. Especially if you tell me you don't fight. It's really fun. But what is so important 
is not that I become intimately acquainted with your business, but it is to normalize the experience of having a third person in the conversation. Because you will reach a point, everyone in this room who is married to a spouse will reach a point where they need a referee, or a referee would have been helpful. The referee is simply one who helps facilitate the conversation and say, oh, that was out of bounds and that was out of bounds. Here's what you're doing and here's what you're doing, and this is why you're not finding a good solution. My old mentor, Mike Malone, when he would sit down with couples who found themselves in difficulty, would put a coffee cup on the table in between them. They would sit in opposing chairs, and the coffee cup had a picture on this side and a picture on that side, and they were different. And he would ask the husband, describe what you see. And he would ask the wife, describe what you see. They would give their descriptions, and then he would say, do you trust what your wife said about the same coffee cup? And he would ask the same of the wife. And sometimes <laughs> the relationships were so acidic, they would begin accusing each other right there. <laughs> but friends, we have to come ready, and a referee helps sometimes. And there is no shame tax on that. It can be a professional counselor, it can be a pastor, it can be an elder or a friend. But reach out, and then when you reach out, you must also be willing to listen. To harden yourself to the advice given simply goes nowhere. But don't be scared of the referee. It's helpful. The second thing that you can do is remember that in these most strained moments, it is that the gospel most deeply applies to our marriages. One of the best marriage books that I've ever read was given to me um, in the months right before I was married. It's by a man named Mike Mason. It's called The Mystery of Marriage. He actually wrote it while he was engaged. J.I. Packer was asked to write the foreword. He almost didn't even read the material because he laughed. Mike Mason was his student. And why would J.I. Packer, who'd been married over 50 years at this point, why would he listen to the advice of a man who's just engaged? Packer decided to read the manuscript, and he found something in there that completely uh, surprised him. It's a wonderful book, a deep meditation on the mystery of two becoming one and why it's so challenging. But Mason explains there that every marriage arrives at the place between a husband and wife where they stare uh, from opposite ends of dry ground that God designates to be a garden. God designates this dry, hard ground that stand between husband and wife to be a garden. They know that they're supposed to plant something and grow something there, and they don't know how it's going to happen. That ground is hard. It's arid. It hasn't grown anything for years but weeds. And so how are they then supposed to till that and grow something? Friends, we have to remember that for the Christian there is always a way out. There is a way out of the mess. There is a way to grow something in that dry, hard ground. And the way is this sacrificial, the way is this submissive love and nurture and care and respect. As husband and wife take up their role, of husbands tending to their families and overseeing its help, accepting all the responsibility and burden that they bear there. 
bringing their wives along in it, and them both using their complementary gifts, but him not denying his role. And of the wife respecting her husband and honoring him, especially where he's weak and where he's insecure, because those things are real. And that together, in the love of the gospel, with forgiveness for past failures, because they will be multiplied, you strive ahead. It is that sacrificial love of the gospel where you lay yourself down for one another as imitators of God, walking in love, that a marriage heals, that that garden, that dry ground becomes a place that can be fruitful, that God would meet you in the hardest places of life. Paul ultimately says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Because at the heart of the marriages inside of this church, that profound mystery lives. That there is a union where two become one. That it's declared at the beginning. You are announced to be husband and wife. And then there is the progressive growth into that oneness. And the challenge here is to take it up. To be intentional with it. To love it. Especially when you find it hard. That the gospel must be applied to these relationships. That is God's call for us. And that a beauty then emerges from that. A beauty that the world can watch in and ultimately see the life of God in the world in the sacrificial love of the gospel. That's what God does. Let's ask for His help. Father, we recognize that we are weak and broken. We carry many faults in the duties and tasks that You assign to us. We bring our many sins and import those into our relationship between husband and wife. And we often turn against one another and rather than being partners and friends committed to something greater than ourselves, we become enemies. Help us to break that down with honesty and charity, with love and delight in one another. May we give ourselves freely to each other. Will you help us husbands to love our wives that we would do so sacrificially at cost to ourselves, that we would nurture and cherish and know how to do that, that you would help our wives, the wives of this church, to respect their husbands, to submit to them in everything, to honor them. And Lord, that in this dynamic, as we display the relationship between Christ and His church, that You would be glorified and that You would help us work through difficulties. That the world would see and understand and know something different of marriage, not because of our verbal critiques of what our culture does with it, but because of the lives that we live. We ask for Your help, God. We need it. Help us to be filled with Your Spirit to bring forth this type of submission. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.